All right, everybody. Uh, this week we are we're gonna do one of the holy of holies. We are gonna do uh, Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. We are Peter. Welcome. Welcome. I think we're a holy because who wants to? <laughs> like, there is nothing more dorky than doing Star Trek two. I know, but it's it's the big one though. Like it's uh it's you know it's the big one. Well, exactly. You know, I've actually composed um I've composed a brief prayer to begin the podcast because this is kind of a big one. No, I'm not kidding. I composed a little prayer. I'm going to just say it now. Um, it's in Latin, but I think you'll be able to to follow along. E plebnista con nunian singum genesis effectum bb besham bestum timum worstum timum amen. <laughs> um but this is really i mean this is this is the uh this is the 800 pound gorilla i mean this is probably the apex of the star trek film franchise i think I, i'm not quite sure who would argue with that it might be the apex of star trek because this is like you know after the show went off and it had that at resurgence it probably peaked at star trek 2 you know like the the show was never popular on, right? So its popularity ran from like the early 70s to maybe like probably this movie. I mean, yes, yeah, Star Trek know. 4, it right? Might have gone for I think it goes a lot further. For example, like Star Trek 4 and Star Trek 6 were big commercial hits. Sure. But this is I think I think this is kind of their this but, is their peak. But Star Trek 4 was about whales. I know, but Star Trek Four made more money than any of them. Well, sure, because it was the most crossover general it's, it's audience. The most movie. accessible, right? You, you right. needed the least knowledge of anything to to go in and have a good time, and it has a very feel good ending and message. Right, it's about whales. Right, it's about <laughs> whales and, and Spock acting silly and swimming. Yeah, um, it's the only the only movie Spock gets good comedy lines. I actually, in. I I think I'm. I'm atypical uh, uh, in that I actually, I really don't particularly enjoy Star Trek four. Like it's too much comedy. It's too much humor. Like it's too light motif for me. I remember when I walked out of it, I felt kind of gypped. Like, you know, now I got to wait two more years for another Star Trek movie. And I kind of felt like I got a sitcom episode out of that one. But I know a lot of people listening to this will probably say, oh, I love Star Trek four, but mm, didn't do it for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> It was highly character driven, though. You got to give them that. It was all yeah, about I guess the if love. You count fest. the whales. Well, with, with Jillian, the uh, cetacean biologist. I don't know who we never saw again. Um, here, let's get back to let's get back to Rathacon. Um, but I think I think we should just spend one or two minutes before we before we talk about Rathacon. We have to talk about Space Seed, and we have to talk about. Star Trek the motion picture because you know do we have this to? movie is very I think so because this movie very clearly builds know, on those. Kidding. And for example, I think many people, not everyone, but many people would would say Space Seed is the best episode of the original series or would at least put it in the top five. And I don't know how recently you've seen Space Seed, but it's it's one of the darkest episodes of the original series in the sense that you know Kirk and company get played uh they're almost killed uh khan's seduction of marlon MacGyver is the historian who uh, sort of throws in with him and allows him to take over the enterprise it's a sort of a dark sexual seduction 
Right. Um, he has all the power in the relationship and doesn't hesitate to use it. Well, who can um, resist Ricardo Montalban? And it and it ends, you know, with with Khan and his men essentially being abandoned slash marooned. You know, and the crew, you know, at the end of the episode, the crew is, you know, quoting Milton back and forth to each other. And Spock sort of wonders what crop will, you know, spring from the seed they planted. So it's 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 almost surprising that the original show didn't go back to that, given how well the episode was received. But that's sort of that's a big, big piece of the background is it's a dark, dark episode, I think, in a lot of ways. I mean, Khan doesn't just. He doesn't just take over the ship. He tortures the crew. He puts Kirk in the decompression chamber. Uh, one of the Superman backhands Uhura in the face on screen. Mm-hmm. So it, it it sets Khan up as sort of an uber villain, I think. Yep. <clears throat> and then um, the, the other thing I wanted to say is that Star Trek, the motion picture, although there's some character development for Kirk, it's really Spock's movie. And and Spock is very, very sort of like struggling with himself and conflicted in Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, and at the end, he mind melds with V'ger and through the events of the end of the movie, like Spock is kind of at peace. And that's the Spock we see in this film. Like this is not this is not the Spock of the series who's struggling with who he is, who's fighting with his parents, right? Who's a split person like this is a much more comfortable Spock than we've ever seen before. Right, so that and I think that because that's out of the way, this allows this movie to be very, very, very much about Kirk's development. Yeah, this right. Well, the themes of the movie, I guess, right, revolve around Kirk getting old, um, the Kobayashi Maru, when what to do in a in a scenario in a no win situation, what that means. Right, and the themes of this movie are are fairly adult i mean uh it's aging loss death renewal sacrifice i mean that's what this movie is really about um it's you know i think a lot of people walked out of the motion picture not really knowing what it was about because it was so obtuse whereas this movie is much more on point and you know it it made me it made me think when i was watching and i've only seen this movie about i don't know 794 times uh before rewatching it for this podcast but it really kind of drove home for me the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars in the sense that Star Trek is much more about sort of juvenile concerns uh, or sort of like debates that you may have as a young person, right? And it's a much more sort of black and white world, whereas Star Trek, you know, even in the old show is sort of about more adult issues. I mean, the very, very first episode of Star Trek is Captain Pike contemplating his career choices and debating whether he should, you know, quit, Um it's a more gray world. It's sort of a bigger palette. Like this is a much more adult movie than for example, any of the star Wars films, any of them. Right. Because, well, they started out with Lucas and then they went from there. And this, this star Trek is an interesting kind of conglomerate of creators. You know, Roddenberry started with certain ideas, but then others kind of took over and even, and the actors contributed Unlike in the Star Wars movies. And they had very, you know, they had a couple or a handful of very clever actors involved. 
True. And and this, you know, this movie, I think I, I think it's fair to say that the most adult Star Wars movie is obviously Empire Strikes Back, which is directed by Irvin Kirshner. And if any movie in Star Wars has anything in common with this movie, it's Empire Strikes Back, because both are about dealing with loss. Right. And of course, um, Luca, Lucas hates that one. He does. No, I think I and I think that it's his least favorite. Well, he had, uh, almost he had, the nothing, fan, to, he had nothing to do with it. And it's, you know, it's funny. I always say that Star Wars is the best film, whereas Empire is the best. Sorry, Star Wars is the best movie. Empire is the best film in the bunch. Um, And then sort of, you know, here we are. The motion picture has, you know, limped across the finish line for $45 million. It made a profit, but um, the studio was very, very unhappy with it. Uh, But they had... They knew they had enough for another movie. The sets were built. The cast was eager to do another movie. Um, and Roddenberry wanted to do... Uh, do, you know what, do you know what Roddenberry's original idea for this movie was? It was some crazy time travel thing, wasn't it? Right. He wanted uh, Kirk and company to go back to Dealey Plaza and and Spock to be on the grassy knoll with a rifle who has to kill JFK to somehow make time right. It was going to be sort of a redo of The City on the Edge of Forever, the famous Star Trek time travel episode with Joan Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, but the studio was deeply unhappy with, uh, with Roddenberry, and uh, his longtime assistant, Susan Sackett, has publicly said that the studio just desperately wanted to dump Roddenberry. And then... Uh, you know, Harv Bennett was sort of brought in. Uh, he'd made a bunch of films, and Harv Bennett was brought in, and he—he he, his famous line was he thought Star Trek was a beached whale. <laughs> um, and he was given control, and Roddenberry was given the title of executive consultant, which basically mm-hmm. translated to Bubkiss. take this money and you have no power. Beat it. Anymore. I can't say uh, I think, I I think Roddenberry him. had an office on the lot. And basically, like, Bennett et al. was essentially told, feel free to ignore him at this point. Mm. And um, so Bennett didn't know anything about the show. So Bennett was not a Star Trek fan. And Bennett uh, locked himself in a room, as the story goes, and they gave him a bunch of VHS tapes. And he watched a bunch of the old shows. And one of the things that he really felt on watching the motion picture was that the movie really doesn't have a villain. Like, who's the villain in the motion picture? Right in the end, Viger is just found out to be misunderstood. I think uh, more the villain, than he's evil. No, the villain was the audience because they were really trying to destroy them actively. <laughs> it was. I certainly felt like they they won too. I think they completely ground me into paste at the end of that one. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a little bit about TMP in the past. I mean, it's it's a tough movie to get through, especially if you're ten years old. Um, what a snoozer. Uh, so, so Charlie Bloodhorn, who owned Paramount and Golf and Western, um, you know, said to Bennett, do you want to do the movie? Bennett said, yes. And he said, can you make it for less than 45 effing million dollars? And then uh, there's different versions of this quote, but Bennett said something to the effect of, I can make five movies for that. And that was kind of how Bennett nailed the job. Right. Um, and Bennett came up with a couple of key ideas, one of which was that they had to have a villain. And he, on watching the old show, uh, felt that Khan was the best villain from the show that they could resurrect in any way. Uh, and that he also, he wanted the characters to age. And he felt that in the motion picture, they had kind of sidestepped the idea of the characters aging. And he actually thought that Shatner and Kelly and Nimoy looked kind of silly running around. 
Right. And he said that you can't kind of play this like you're 30 anymore. Like you've got to play it like you're an older person. And uh, Nimoy was okay with that idea. Shatner was very resistant to that idea. Well, they also and told Shatner him they were going to take his lifts away. <laughs> so he was extremely unhappy in general. <laughs> Shatner did not want to look old. Uh, right. That's for sure. But uh, and, and Nimoy famously didn't want anything to do with it. And then they sold Nimoy in the movie by promising him his big death scene. Well, that's uh, the thing, right? Why would Nimoy not? I know, I know he didn't want to do it. And they had to, in order to bring him back, they had, he had to basically approve of the story and the script and, have, and die. And die in a way that he liked, Right. Which he he die he dies in you know a great scene, um, but right which we have to talk about. But but why did Nimoy come? I mean, so Nimoy why did he want to leave? His, why didn't he want to do well, it? Well, he says in his autobiographies that basically his relationship with Roddenberry was terrible. He felt that he had been grossly underpaid. Um, during the series, during the reruns, and and he was, I believe, involved with some lawsuits against Paramount trying to recover the money. And I think it may not have been this one; it may have been the motion picture. But like part of his involvement in the films was was uh, predicated on Paramount settling their lawsuits with him in his favor. Mm. Uh, he tells a famous story where he was in London and he walked out of a play that he was doing, and there was his face on a billboard for Guinness beer. And he got a rate. Like, why am I not getting any money for this enormous billboard in London? Hmm. Um, so I think that it was just sort of, I think it was partially money and I think partially it was ego. And he was just, you know, he could not stand Roddenberry. Hmm. Um, and then, and then, you know, so, you know, this movie is saved by a couple of people, right? Harv Bennett and then enter Nick Meyer, right? right. Um, who, uh, who famously made Time After Time. Uh, which which might be worth a podcast someday. It's um, Malcolm. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen Time After Time? Yeah, we saw it when, like in the library basement. We saw it. Yeah, no, we saw it in the library basement. That's true. Uh, with Malcolm McDowell, Doctor Soren from Star Trek Generations, uh, David Warner who plays the ambassador in Star Trek Five, and Chancellor Gorkon in Star Trek Six, and Mary Steenburgen, and he'd also written the Seven Percent Solution. The the, the well, that was the, yeah, that Sherlock was his Holmes novel, yeah. right? Um, and he didn't want to do it. And he, he was, you know, he openly talks about how he thought Star Trek was garbage. He had a very snobby uh, attitude on it. And basically, he had to be sort of talked into doing it. Um, and he basically agreed to do it because he realized that this was essentially Horatio Hornblower in space, which he'd enjoyed very much as a kid. So he said, I'll go ahead and do it. And one of one of Meyer's big ideas that's reflected throughout all of the film and really all the subsequent films is that he made it more militaristic and more nautical, uh, yeah. which Roddenberry deeply, deeply opposed and, and resented, which, by the way, probably tells you it was a great idea. <laughs> um, and sort of all through the movie, you know, uh, the bosun's whistle, the torpedo room, which is basically like the the cannon room, the way the hatches look, uh, the burial at sea. I mean, there's it, it just feels nautical from top to bottom. Um, Mister, mm-hmm. you know, just right, the, right. The use of uh, Mister for all all people. So right. then Bennett tried to write a script, and he he kind of struggled with it. And then he brought in Jack Sowards, who was mostly a TV writer, but Sowards was a big Star Trek fan. And Sowards kind of worked together to get something that they could present to the studio, although 
um, I think Harv Bennett said that it was actually, it's really Nick Meyer's uncredited rewrite is what you see on the, on the screen. Like I think, mm-hmm. uh, I think Meyer sort of locked himself away and in 12 days kind of polished up the, the script. Uh, and Khan, uh, sorry, and Montalban was available. Right. So, you know, they were able to get him. Well, he was making, uh, what's it called? Fantasy, Fantasy Island. Island. Right. At the time. Yeah. And, you know, Montalban had an interesting comment about it is when he first read the script, he didn't want to do it because Khan is not on screen very much. Like Khan only has a handful of scenes. Like there are long, long periods of the movie where Khan is not seen. And he, he felt uncomfortable with that. And then I don't know if he, he realized it or someone pointed it out to him and, but they said to him that, you know, when you're not on screen, you're all they talk about. Right. And then he kind of realized in that way, he really is in the entire movie from start to finish. And that was kind of what made him agree to do it. Hmm. Um, so, and apparently, um, you know, once they had Montalban aboard, they pretty much were able to get everybody. And, uh, and Bennett felt that one of the best things that he did was he brought... Kirstie Alley in because you know she was really she's the new face of this movie right they need somebody new to be able to you know kind of bounce the story against right explain and and put some things in relief so that it's so that their their moves can be comprehensible Right, their their uh, motivations, and you know, and the other thing, you know, the the Kobayashi Maru, you don't really see it come for a circle, full circle, till the till uh, Spock's death, and when he mentions it, you know, correct, um, and and you know, so they they did it. It's a really great script um, plot item because it's not just about. Exp- about getting old and getting experienced and what it means to become capable um, in something and what seeing young people or seeing a novice's struggle putting making when you see a novice struggle it sort of puts things into perspective for you and you realize where you are which you know in an from your own viewpoint is hard to do, right? You sort of, you can't realize when you're an expert until you see somebody else who's a novice um, stink at something, right? There's a sort of a, so that, so you think that that's the main part of the, that's the main reason for the Kobayashi Maru scene. But then in the end, it ties back into Spock's death. So they, they use Savic for that. Right. And the Kobayashi Maru is essentially the frame of the movie. Right. right. Savick's test. And then really at the end, Kirk's and Spock's together. Right. And there, and, and shall we say Spock's novel solution, but you could see how this is a much better set of ingredients, right? They, they were throwing out a lot of the Roddenberry stuff that didn't work. They were bringing in stuff that was more likely to work, have a broader appeal. Um, you know, they brought in sort of, people who maybe weren't in love with Star Trek. And maybe that's a better way to do it at times, right? I mean, sort of the the lavish, you know, 19-minute, you know, 
loving camera pans of the Enterprise and Space Dock and the motion picture is really replaced by about a 90-second scene in this movie. Like, the Enterprise starts this movie again in Space Dock, and there's just a very sort of brief scene where they pull out, and it's it's not done to focus on the ship itself. It's really done to focus on Savick sort of coming of age. It's like Spock gives Savick the chance to, to take the ship out, showing how you got all the oomph of the original scene in a fraction of the time, and you added emotional content context to it yeah as opposed to just a ship pulling out of a dock there was zero emotion in, in the first movie <laughs> this movie i did, think people I mean, were excited to sort of be seeing star trek again just i just think the product that they saw just was so far from their expectations that it was jarring it was immensely disappointing i think it was so disappointing that people couldn't really get a handle on how disappointing it was because <laughs> they were so completely shocked by it was confusing it was terrible dry and, and confusing. slow and, and slow and, and, i mean and their outfits looked strange glacial. and nothing was kind of the way you remembered it it was glacial and you know th- so this this movie long example, shots of the inside of v'ger so star trek 2 right doesn't use any of the the music from the series. They have a James Horner um, composed a, a cinematic orchestral, um, what's it called? Uh, you know, score score right well, to but, the to the movie, but, but also with real instruments. Not a lot of electronic spacey sounds, right? They didn't use a theremin in this movie. They used no real instruments. No, that's TV. This is a movie movie gets a whole orchestra right you score that and you record the orchestra playing and they watch the movie while they play they watch the scene so like this this is a movie this gets a score so yes (laughs) you know and that's the point you know it's different and yet the score is in the spirit of star trek it's dramatic it's it's sort of um, heroic sounding it's heroic it's a large scale and sort of sweeping you know, it's kind of like, it's like Aaron Copeland meets Star Trek, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's terrific. It's great. They did, they had none of that in, in the first movie, which is just and the, And paint, there's, paint you know, it, there's, there's conflict in this movie, right? I mean, Kirk and Khan are pitted against each other by about 30 minutes in, right? Kirk is in the middle of a midlife crisis. He's supposed to be turning 50. Um, and sort of superimposed on that when his mind is occupied elsewhere, you know, he is thrust into this crisis and the movie is a wash and conflict that works very well. It also looks great. I mean, ILM did a lot of the work in this movie. Yeah. And it just looks fantastic. They did a good job with the sets, too, and the costumes. And they they just they got they made everything look different and look better and cinematic and up to cinematic standards, and yet it still was Star Trek. So it's exactly what people wanted out of a movie. They wanted a a bigger, more cinematic, more lush and lavish experience, but with the same feeling of drama uh, that the show had. And and that's what they did. And none of that was accomplished on the Star Trek one. Well, and you really feel like something's at stake too. Like in the in the first movie, basically Earth is at stake, but there's no real sense of danger. Whereas in this, you know, there is a real sense of danger, and that danger turns out to be very, very real. Like they pay a very, very terrible price to win yeah. at the end of this movie. Uh-huh. They um 
We didn't do a plot summary, but I guess we don't need to. Um, yeah. It's interesting that Shatner and Khan have no scenes together. You right. know, they talk on screen and that and they talk over radios a couple times, but that's essentially it. Like they never actually, they're never on in the same shot together. Yep. They trade kind of uh, um, attacks, verbal attacks with each other, more or less. Or, well, and or, really the, a lot of the movie is, is, you know, Khan's successes often come by brute force, whereas Kirk's successes mostly come by subterfuge. Like, again and again and again in the movie, Kirk is able to outthink Khan uh, and, and, and trick him or sort of manipulate him into what he wants to do. Uh, sort of like yeah, right he's... from the beginning, the way that he sort of lies to him when they have their first, uh, their first encounter and sort of fools him into thinking he's sending over information when, in fact, he's ordering Reliant to lower her shields. Yeah, he's uh, hacking Reliant's computer. Although it's it it's incredibly dated that Reliance prefix code is one six three zero nine. Like my my Gmail password is like fourteen letters, you know, three numbers, a hashtag. You know what I'm saying? Like like really one six three zero nine. I think well, I could write a program know. in Basic that could run all the com- all the possible combinations in about three lines. Well, this was um, you know it was 1982. Well, and just the idea of of sort of computer hacking, it's presented well, but it. When you watch it now and sort of Spock is flicking those switches, it looks a little... It's one of the few really dated bits in the movie. You, you mean know, there's no um, keyboard you know, Now it would be like a 740-character, <laughs> you know, 128-bit code. I don't know. It would be something more complicated than that. Right. Um, there's not a lot of... There's not a lot of missteps in this movie. There's a couple of things that kind of if you... If you kind of pay a little too much attention, don't make any sense. Like, like, like Khan says that SETI Alpha Five exploded. I'm not really sure how a planet explodes. That doesn't really make any sense. Um, I don't know. And it's a little far fetched to believe that uh, Captain Terrell and Chekhov and the crew of the Reliant wouldn't notice that they were at the wrong planet, or that. Like, hey, this doesn't really match the charts. Like, they sort of beam down, do, 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 you know, like, what? <laughs> Con? Like, that's well, a little silly. Why didn't they just call up to the Reliant and have themselves beamed out the second Chekhov realized what was going on instead of, like, trying to scramble out of there? Oh, no. Botany Bay. Like, it's a little <laughs> silly. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, they do it to set up the – they have to do it to set up the story, but it's a little silly. And And how come – they're supposed to be on SETI Alpha 5 15 years. Yep. Why are all of Khan's followers younger? Like, he's the only one who aged. Yeah. Right? Because in, in Space Seed, Khan's followers are shown to be all adults, whereas, like, he's kind of running around with a bunch of kids, like Joachim, his sort of right-hand man. You know, he looks like he's 35, and he's the, you know, he's the oldest of the bunch. The other thing that's strange is is in the show they explicitly say that they're mixed races and for example like when they're in the briefing room and Khan is calling for help he calls out Rodriguez, Ling, McPherson like obviously he's calling out people of different ethnicities but everybody who's with Khan now looks like they're from LA like they're all they all have a sort of a southern <laughs> california surfer look right they're all from the valley dude right but they're all young like it's it's 
odd. And like, that's something that like has kind of bothered me for a long time. Like, why didn't they have him running around with a bunch of other people his age? Like, it would have been interesting to do that also. Um, <laughs> Get my and walker. Is, <laughs> and when, this is my last bitch, but uh, like when Spock walks into the dilithium matrix chamber, he puts gloves on. <laughs> really? Like that's going to help. Well, well, I don't know. I give him that because you got to figure, I mean, he's reaching into, by the way, that the, the, they make radiation somehow seem visible in a very clever blow way. in your face. I mean, well, you know, no, you clearly haven't, you clearly aren't up on the latest specs on the uh, dilithium matrix, you know, 6.0 revision. Well, you know, in this movie, they just go ahead and do it. And it's dramatic instead of like saying a bunch of jargon. I mean, it is. I mean, they're trying to convey that he's sort of, you know, looking the beast right in the face and no one can behold the face of the Gorgon and live, so to speak. Uh, But I think it looks good. It looks good, but it's silly if you think about it. That's what I mean. Like, it's the kind of thing like Khan's crew looks great. They look rough. Like they've been living on this rock with these, you know, these these eels, whatever, right? Eating sand for dinner. Like they look rough. But then if you think about it, like, why are they young? Right? Why are they? Why do they look so good? And in the same way that like the gloves, it's just a little. It's just a little silly. It's believe me. It's a small. Uh, it's a small complaint of mine. So I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I think you're going to disagree with me. And I think Shatner is a good actor. Like Shatner is the beating heart of this movie. No, I and think Shatner's a good is actor. A, he is a good actor, and he gets a lot of crap for overacting. Um, but he, I mean. He really, really, really is the glue here, and, and and even even Spock takes a big backseat to Kirk in this movie. And well, even yeah. even his scream, I'm not going to do it, but maybe maybe you want to do it. But <laughs> even his famous scream in this movie, right when he calls out Khan's name, you want to do it? No. <laughs> um, you know. There is a very plausible argument to be made that he is not overacting in that scene. But why should you even have to argue about that? No, I, no, I think I'm, no. This is I like, mean, this is what I, I said earlier. It's I just to his touch delivery base on this. is a little funny. That I don't think I think he does a great job. It just it's a little amusing. But he no, is but acting it, for Khan's benefit because he that's knows. my point. Like he's this is all part of him lying like he's already been told like for example when he gone oh, that's my shot at it <laughs> but um you know he's already been told Gesundheit. by spock that they're fixing the ship and they're going to be ready soon so when khan says i'm going to maroon you buried alive you know when khan right. does that actually kirk's not even worried like he already know, knows like that's eh, all baloney they're going to oh, beat me oh, up he's soon. acting. No, I know. He's trying to Right, he's but that's what I'm saying. Like, people have used distraught. that as people have used that as an example of Shatner as a bad actor, but but he's actually just doing it to manipulate Khan. I know. It just sounds funny. I think the it's, just, line. it's over the top. But again, it's, right. it's, I think a lot of people don't realize that he's doing that for Khan's benefit. Not because he's upset, because the minute that scene is over, he's he's eating an apple. He's, you know, he's sort of, he looks awful relaxed just in the very, very next scene, which is another sort of tip to the audience that he's really not particularly afraid. I think he's trying to bang Carol Marcus again in the next scene. 
BB Bash does a good job in this too. You know, she's kind of the first female in Star Trek who, you know, kind of doesn't fall for Kirk's wiles. Like, like she's, you know, she takes David away. Like she, she, she doesn't tell him he has a kid. She takes him away. Like she's not smitten with Kirk anymore. Like, and she can, and there's sort of hints that she can see what she liked in him and she can see pieces of him and David. But, you know, like, you know, she's, she's got her own stuff going on. Yep. By the way, how come this is another little point? So she makes that little computer CGI video, which looked unbelievable in 82 and still looks decent. Yeah. Um, to ask for funding, but there's no money in the future. Like they say over and over and over again that there's no money in the future, yet she explicitly says, We're hoping Starfleet funds us. Maybe she needs some just some dilithium crystals or something. Uh, maybe or a starship, I don't know, or something. But it was just sort of it was it was a rare, a rare and overt mention of money. Well, the, the only show. you know, what what I what I didn't mention, I want to mention before was the only thing that one of the things that irritates me in this movie that's an eye roller for me is the uh, the Spock and Kirk days to hours encoding, you know. Right, Khan Khan. Didn't, somehow Khan didn't pick up wink, on that one. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> days, hours could seem like days if you go by the book. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Captain. <laughs> Although I will bet you, though, that most kids didn't pick up on it. I'm sure the adults in the audience did, but I bet most kids seeing it didn't know what that was about, you know? No, because, you know, if you're a kid, whatever, but... There's, um... When they, right, when they beam up from, um, from the asteroid, from the Genesis cave, there's a bit that's not in the version I watched for this, but, you know, they, they beam up. There's a nice little bit where they're actually shown talking in transit, like Savick and Kirk are talking in the transporter beam, um, which they do later in Next Gen. But this is the first time they show people sort of like that you can talk while you're in the beam. But there's a great line that wasn't in the the version of the film I watched this time where they get aboard the Enterprise and they go to the turbolift and it's not working. And Spock says, you know, they're not working below sea deck and they're they're taking a, a ladder up to the bridge and it's cut here, but there's a great little bit that you can see in some of the longer versions where Spock says to Kirk, who is that young man referring to David Marcus? And Kirk says, that young man is my son. And Spock's like, hmm. <laughs> I'm surprised that, that that didn't make it in. It's a very, it's a very good bit that uh, it's just a few seconds, but I guess they didn't like it. They um, could have had Spock say, another one? How many of those <laughs> well, you, know, you have funny scattered around? They kind of play off the same thing. There's a Next Generation episode where about that's sort of about Kirk, sorry, Picard finding out that he has a son. Um, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, but that seems genuinely surprising. Whereas with Kirk, you're like, that guy blasted him out all over the place. <laughs> He's got half green ones, half purple ones. I think he, I think he made it with the Horda. There's some like... Kirk looking, here's some Horda with like a, you know, with lifts at a toupee. <laughs> making making caves somewhere. <laughs> right. There's um, a Horda going, Khan! Actually, you know what? You know what? what's what's funny about the Khan scream? This is what's funny. It's not the actual scream. It's the quiver. It's his expression. Be- no, no. It's the quiver. Because before he does it, he he shakes his head his out, out, like yeah, his whole head shakes. God, <laughs> do that again. So, Wait, do that again. It's the shake. 
<laughs> the shake is funny. <laughs> One show a day for the quiver. Come on. Uh, um, the quiver is funny. Well, yeah. Again, it's 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 Shatner at his most Shatnerist. I think is fair to say. Yep. Um, you know, D. Kelly doesn't do a ton in this movie. He's got a couple of scenes that are good. His his really his best scene is with Kirk in his apartment at his birthday, sort of setting the emotional tone for Kirk's character. And then he does a little bit uh, where they sort of argue over the moral implications of the Genesis device. And then you know he doesn't factor very largely in the movie after that. No, he he's in. He shows up in the beginning to set things up, and then in the end, when Spock dies, and that's it. He's really not around otherwise. Um, no, but but he's and, and, important in the story. Whereas, like for example, Scotty really isn't. Um, no, no and, one and some else of Scotty's really stuff is. was cut. I mean, the 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 bit about Scotty's nephew Peter Preston being aboard is is dramatically cut down. And for example, in the theatrical release, it's never explicitly stated that Peter Preston is Scotty's nephew. Hmm. Uh, whereas the scenes that they filmed gave Scotty a much bigger part and had more sort of emotional resonance to the rest of the story about loss. You know, what else is cut from the final version is that that Savick is supposed to be half Romulan, but it's never, ever said. So in the movie, she essentially comes off as a full-blooded Vulcan. Um, right. And it's supposed to, you know, her sort of half Romulan side is a sort of supposed to show or convey why she's a little emotional about failing the Kobayashi Maru. Like, she swears during her Kobayashi Maru test, she says, damn. Um, <laughs> which, you know, before Data and Genesis was swearing in Star Trek. Um, so it's, it's sort of funny, the cuts that they made. Um, I think they're just justifying afterward that they wanted her to emote a little bit. They, you know, they didn't want her that flat. Well, in, so the, sc- and, well, in the screenplay, she's explicitly stated to be half Romulan. Spock tells Kirk in the screenplay, but the, they filmed it and the scene is cut. Mm. Um, but obviously, you know, the, the whole movie comes to a head and with the space battle, which is phenomenal. Yep. Um, Thank you, and, ILM. Right. And, you know, and I, I mean, this is a term I use sort of in our generations cast is like, you know, Star Trek does well when it's sort of the capital ships fighting each other. And it's an interesting twist on that, that they're both Starfleet ships, for example, as was done in the original series episode, The Ultimate Computer. It's very exciting to see starships against starships, Federation against Federation. Um, it looks great. The effects are good. It shows you the power of models. You know what I mean? Like watching this 35 years later, like the models look amazing and the, the detail is incredible in the models. Yeah. And they're lit well and they have a sense of mass, you know, and when they're hit, you know, there's a sense of damage and danger. Like the, like the whole, all the space battles uh, look uh, incredible to me in this movie. It doesn't they don't look, look like, cheap or dated at all. It doesn't look like a video game. And even really good CG to this day, it's sometimes you know, sometimes the physics are just if they're a little tiny bit off somehow, you just your brain you, notices. Yeah, you notice. I don't know, it's something about your visual cortex that can And these pick it ships up. have a sense of mass. Right. And they move slow, too. You know, they look bigger and heavier because they move slow. Like, they're not sort of zipping around like a fighter jet. Like, they're moving slow. And, for example, the near collision between the Reliant and the Enterprise, which actually happens twice, they almost collide. Um, but the, the one there in the first battle, 
where uh, Khan confronts the Enterprise for the first time, like the near collision is, it's very harrowing and the music is terrific. Score one there for James Horner. It's um, like you said, then, it's nautical. So they're like, they're like ships of the line battle, cannon battling each other. I mean, right. They and really very, very much sort of passing of each other in broadside. Yes, they do that specifically in one scene. Right. Um, and then, um, you know, Khan has some tricks up his sleeve. Like when Khan is defeated, right? Like we see sort of the true depths of Khan's sort of bitterness and desire for revenge. Like, like he's clearly lost, but he's like, I'll take you all with me. Right. Yeah. And he gets to use his second Moby Dick quote, right? He, he uses two Moby Dick quotes. One is he says, he tasks me. And then the other is he gives the uh, from hell's heart speech from Moby Dick. Um mm-hmm. You know, sort of like casting him as Ahab, like he can't let go. Like Kirk is his, Kirk is his great white, white whale. whale, right? Harv Bennett referred to Star Trek as a beached whale, but Kirk is Khan's uh, great white whale. Yeah, uh, I kind and then of we like get to Khan's scene where he's di- he's all deformed, and I think he did a nice job with having his his arm look broken, his hand is useless, but he's using his one remaining hand. He's very, he can crawl around, and his last act is to activate the. The Genesis device to blow it right, and his up. followers are all dead, right? Who swore allegiance yep. to him? I mean, you know, Joachim, whose dying words are yours, is the superior. Like he, they're all dead. Like he's lost everything. And you know what's interesting? Yeah. I just want to say one thing about Joachim. I don't remember who plays him. Every single thing that that guy says to Khan, the whole movie is true, and Khan never listens to him. Like, like before the before the action gets underway, he's like, "What are we chasing Kirk around for? We got the ship. We're off the rock. Let's go." Yep. You know, and, and then sort of again and again and again, he's sort of looking at Khan, like giving him good advice, all of which is uh, wasted. Both Kirk and Khan ignore good advice from their their juniors in the way that Kirk ignores Savak, right? When she's basically says like, hey, you're violating the regulations. You got to put the shields up. And Kirk ignores her. And to make it worse, Spock kind of takes her to task. But they both ignore good advice from their juniors. Yeah. Sort of showing that the value of, I guess, of the other people around them, and then we get to the big scene, right? The big, the big finale scene where where Spock dies, where Kirk and Spock, you know, they they have that scene. Spoiler which is alert! Really, sort of, it's the it's the emotional payoff to the entire uh, theme and thread that they've been weaving since the start. Yeah, they knock it out of the park with that one. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. That scene I mean, really could, holds could up. Could you imagine when they filmed that, how hard that was to do? I'm sure they and just it, And it's incredibly paycheck. clever that they're separated. Uh-huh. You know, like they have to do it. They have to do it through plexiglass. And Nimoy does a great job when he stands up and he can barely walk and he can barely see. Like he's barely functional. Like right. you get but, the you sense know, that he, anybody he else would have been. He straightens his dead. uniform. He straightens yes. his uniform, which is a very good touch. Sort of like he's trying very to good. still have his dignity. Right. Well, he knows. He knows he's dead. Right. Yeah, you get the but sense he's, that he's, he's dying sort of, and yeah, he's out of he it. Does, but he he has wants to, to do look that. Vulcan at the end. Yeah. Um, and I remember. I remember when I saw this, I did not know going in that Spock was going to die. And, and I uh, clearly it had been teased to the, in the press releases. And, but I, I, you know, I, I saw this movie cold and I, I just, I was stunned and I kept waiting like they had in every other Star Trek 
episode ever where they would somehow flip it over and everything was going to be okay. And I remember just being absolutely stunned to my core as a little kid that they really did it. And the movie ends and Spock is dead. Yeah. I mean, it's yep. a very, very brave thing for them to do. I mean, that this, you know, that's the answer to the Kobayashi Maru, right? Yep. Right. Sacrifice yourself and save everybody else, which, which ironically, Kirk kind of tries to do uh, when Khan initially encounters them. He says, "I'll beam over," but but Spock is successful in doing it. Right, and Spock brings it around when he he has you know like a one minute farewell to Kirk through the glass when he walks over and he says to him, the first thing he says to him is, uh, I've never taken the, you know, Kobayashi Maru, Maru until, until now. now. What, do you, what do you think of my solution? Right. Because you know? Spock didn't come up through the command chain. He came up through the science chain. Yeah. You know, um, there is an episode of uh, next gen called thine own self. That's a much, much smaller story, but it's about, Counselor Troy deciding she wants to become a, a bridge command officer, and 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 the part of the lesson of that show is that she has to be willing to sacrifice crewmen and let them die to achieve a bigger goal, which is sort of similar to the way that it's presented here. It's just sort of interesting that it has echoes, you know, a decade later in another show, um, and then you know they. At the end, sort of through all this, Kirk is sort of rejuvenated, and you know he he says to Bones at the beginning that he feels old. And at right. the end of the movie, he says, I feel young, which is sort of one of many times in the movie where they have paired lines separated by significant lengths of time. Uh, yes. And for example, like I, I made a little list while I was watching them because they do this sort of over and over and over. They say something at the beginning, they say something at the end to show the resonance. Like twice in the movie, you hear how we deal with death is at least as important as we deal with life. Kirk right. says twice, I don't like to lose. Twice you hear the needs of the many outweigh the needs yep. of the few. Uh, twice Spock tells Kirk, the I have been and always shall be your friend. And again, yep. they do the same thing every time where it's done the first time sort of to introduce the concept in a light way. And the second time is to really drive home that this is actually a serious point we're trying to make here. And we mean it. Right. And doing that is the perfect evolution of the show to cinema just like they did with the score they don't do that they don't do dramatic echoes like that on the tv show they do things once because it's episodic right and in the cinematic sense right, they and, the, can and the main cast out. has signed uh, has signed a contract for 26 episodes a season right they have plenty of time to do things they have to make things everything in a bite-sized piece and the difference in a movie is that you make a, a much more grand and sweeping adventure. So you cannot make a movie the same way you make a TV show. And they make the, they, this was the true transition to movies for Star Trek. You know, it, they, I they agree. get the I agree. spirit the, of the, the show. The first one they is it. essentially a, a big episode and, and really a redo of an original series episode, The Changeling. And a terrible redo. They <laughs> right, the original was better. Like they did more in forty-eight minutes uh, with the original one than they did in the the two hours and forty minutes of uh, the motion picture. But you know, was you it only? Said it was only two we hours were, and forty minutes. I thought it was like. <laughs> it seems five like it's hours. nine hours. But we talked about this last time about how you know when people walked out of Wrath of Khan, 
they knew Star Trek was saved. And it's true. Yeah. Like you can you can you can just feel it walking out. Like you knew there was gonna be another movie after this. Oh, you knew they hit it out of the park. I mean, you knew that this is what you'd been waiting for, even if you didn't realize it. You knew that they they hit that they made the yeah they made the the Star Trek movie finally. Uh, you were devastated, right? That they actually killed, killed Spock. Spock, probably the most beloved character, and um, and you knew that they were going to do something, probably bring him back. But you knew that something was going to happen, and they were going to make more. So and, I actually, I actually did not think they were going to bring Spock back. Like when I remember when I saw this, like we, me and my brother and my father, we talked about it the whole way home. And we all thought Spock was not going to come back and Savick was going to become the new science officer. That's how we thought they were going to do it. Like in the next movie, I fully expected Savick to take the science station, you know, and then that's how they would have a Vulcan, but different enough that it was a woman. That's, that's kind of what I was expecting. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, when, look, and when they sort of hint especially. That, that that's going to, you know, that she's sort of his successor. Yes, she's his his student. She's clearly his sort of his apprentice in the movie. Right. Similar to a, like they do something very similar, for example, in Star Trek Six, where Kim Cattrall plays the Valeris character. Right. Very right. similar. Although in that movie, she betrays him. But that's for another podcast. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the flaws of this movie are very, very small. Um, yep. You know what the original title of this movie was, by the way? Uh, what? The Undiscovered Country. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was the original. And then they, they nixed it when they brought uh, when they brought some of the same people back for Star Trek Six. They sort of were able to use that. Um, yeah. Which I believe is Shakespeare's term for death. Yeah. I think that's what that refers to. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I've seen this movie a lot, as I mentioned earlier. And, and I did rewatch the whole thing again for this podcast and i will tell you like it's a very easy watch like i'm not fast forwarding i'm not skipping scenes i watch the whole thing and it's really it's really effortless to watch this it's so brisk i mean i remember being a kid and loving it and um but it it seemed so much longer i mean longer in enjoyable way but now i mean it's really it's really moves along the whole, every scene is brisk the whole movie is well put together and really well paced and um really the opposite of the first one almost every way <laughs> i mean talking you know, about poorly 80, paced 82 by the way when this came out what a year like think about what happened in 82 you have blade runner you have et the Thing, Tron, Poltergeist, Dark Crystal, Conan the Barbarian. Right? Yeah. And that's just a sample. I mean, that's a big year yep. for sci-fi or genre movies. Yep, we picked the right time to grow up. No, Two I'm telling you, like, I mean, like I, I mean, I think I saw every single one of those in the theater, plus a bunch of other crap, but but uh, what a year. We were, what a year if, for uh, for stuff to see. I mean, no, crap, and, uh, if we were a little younger, we would have been, you know, it would have been like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> we would have been watching He-Man. <laughs> I watch um, He-Man. But, you know, I bring it back to something I said in the beginning. Like, what's really, really striking is that this is all not Roddenberry. This is like they took it away from Roddenberry and they made a better product. And, you know, it's funny because the exact same thing happens on next gen. Like 
<coughs> the two weakest seasons of next gen beyond any doubt are the first and the second where Roddenberry really has a lot of say. And really in the second season, they start to sort of phase him out and sort of marginalize him. <coughs> Excuse me. And he passes away. He passes away sometime around the third season. And really, once they give the show over to Rick Berman, who's not perfect, but once they give the show over to sort of other hands and they get away from all this sort of Roddenberry crap, it's better. And again, you see that a lot of the same sort of theme, like this show becomes a little more nautical, <coughs> a little more military, a little more rigid in the hierarchy, and it plays much, much better. So is he, uh, he's Lucas-esque in some ways, huh? Well, I think that, you know, I don't know, like, I, I don't want to be uncharitable to Roddenberry. I mean, he clearly had a lot of big ideas, but there, there's just a sort of a, a lot of the sort of after Roddenberry's passing, the comments that people are willing to make about him are extremely different than what they were willing to say when he was alive and a lot of sort of dirt or sort of like bad behavior or sort of selfishness has come out since his passing. Yeah. I think he holds up better than Lucas in some ways. Well, I mean, his core ideas are good, but it also shows you too, like, you know, you can have a great idea for a movie or a TV show, but you can't have an, a great idea every single time for, for 25 or 30 years. Like you've got to let other people take the reins and, and step up into another function. You know, um, I don't know if you ever get a chance, you should see chaos on the bridge which is a, a, it's a sort of a documentary that Shatner made. And a lot of it is about sort of like struggles with Roddenberry behind the scenes, sort of in the show and in the early movies and sort of like Roddenberry and his lawyers and, and sort of like, like, so he's like, he's trying to market everything he can on the side and he's keeping all the money. And, you know, sort of like, as we alluded to earlier, his fights with Nimoy, et cetera. Hmm. Uh, but it's, it's just on that. Netflix. It's called Chaos on the Bridge. It's basically a documentary, but it's pretty interesting. That is um, interesting. But again, you know, to bring us back to Star Trek Two, like they had to marginalize Roddenberry. Like they could not do another Star Trek, the motion picture, because that's all Roddenberry, top to bottom, right? right? I mean, you the, the the parallels between, for example, the motion picture and the beginning of next generation are very, very similar because Roddenberry comes back again and again and again to these sort of same ideas. Uh, you know, Riker and Decker are the same. Ilea and Troy are the same. The sort of like, we're just here on a scientific mission. It's not a Navy, but it's clearly, it's a military ship. Like, like again, they had to push him to the side to make it good. Um, but, and, you know, and now all of a sudden the thing is firmly in the hands of other people, right? Uh, Nick Meyer, Harv Bennett, right? Nimoy directs the next one. Like, this is really the passing of the torch from the movie point of view, at least. And it never, ever, ever comes back to Roddenberry. Like, they really, they just move on without him. Yeah. And to the movie's, you know, to the movie's credit. Um, no, I think our next podcast should be about... Um James Dewan's bagpipes. <laughs> and I mean uh, that James literally, Dewan. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> there is no, no, not figuratively. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's, it, it really holds up. I still think, as I said in the beginning, it's, it's the best one. Um, it's really the best of the bunch, and and uh, it's way better than the whales. I know people love the whales, but I mean, like, it, it is not even to compare this to the the whales to this. I mean, like, good lord. 
Um, there to be, but you know, look, I mean, you got to give them credit. Like, you know, this is this is the this is the Star Trek equivalent of you know Babe Ruth standing at home plate watching the ball fly over you know the the wall into the parking lot after he's hit it. They crushed it with this one. There's no question. I, I they never really they didn't equal this one. You know, the only thing I would change, like if I was going to be George Lucas and I was going to go back and like make something different, the only thing I would change in this entire movie is the stupid prefix code. Like it's the one (laughs) glaring thing I would make Spock say like Reliance prefix code is 168 digits and we're sending it over right now. You know, like, okay, you know, or something. But, you know, it's basically he says the equivalent of Reliance prefix code is four. Well, you know, (laughs) if you're going to change stuff, I'd probably also throw the retina scan in there. You know, it's funny because other people um, online often sort of like they point to the retina scan as sort of like a glaring dated idea that was super cool in sci-fi in 1982, but now just looks looks sort of silly. Like we're not we're not we're not slow. scanning our retinas. Oh, you Stand very well could for retina scan. Right. You know, retina, 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 <laughs> retina scan. Yeah, they they really the retina scan is like longer than the Enterprise reveal scene. <laughs> Right, but you know they had to make it look good. So, Jeez. Uh, all right, should we wrap there? Yeah, let's next week. Star all right, Trek thanks 5. everybody. Good, good. If you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it in a couple of years, go back and watch Wrath of Khan, and you will not regret it. You will not regret it. Do the head shake when you watch it. <laughs> the quiver, the quiver. All right, the quiver. Thanks everybody. Right. Good night. <laughs>